everyone, it's me, Lizzie. Welcome you back to another episode of Mimosa Talk. Wow, it's December. Like, how did we even get here? Where did the year go? I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving because all eyes are on the next holiday now. We're officially in the holiday months, which means that things on the television front are getting a little bit quieter, especially with all the mid-season finales, giving shows and the audience a few weeks of a break. Obviously, you'll probably just fill up your time watching Lifetime and Hallmark movies like I have been doing. And look, we're not judging. This is a judgment-free zone. But are you ready to talk about all the TV shows you crave? If so, pour that mimosa and join me for the seventh episode of Mimosa Talk. Cheers! Since we started this episode with kind of a holiday theme, let's start with the news that a pretty little liar is taking over co-hosting duties alongside Ryan Seacrest on Dick Clark's Rockin' to New Year's Eve celebration. Lucy Hale will be joining the longtime host in New York City, which is kind of a change of scenery for her because for the past few years, she's been hosting from the New Orleans location. Broadway star Billy Porter will be taking her place in the Big Easy. Hale is replacing Seacrest's longtime host, Jenny McCarthy, who announced earlier that she would be pulling back on hosting duties to spend some time with her family. Personally, I'm excited about this decision. McCarthy was a natural, but Hale is going to bring a different vibe and a perspective to the celebrations, and I'm just excited to see how she will fare alongside Ryan, who, who you know has been born to host literally everything on television. Uh, pop, pop star Sierra will also be returning to lead us into 2020 from the Los Angeles celebrations. None of the performing artists have been announced just yet, but it's only a matter of time since New Year's Eve is just I don't know, 20-something days away. I I really cannot believe that this year has just flown by. Uh, New Year's Rockin' Eve celebrations kick off at 8, 7 central on ABC on December 31st. Fuller House is gearing up for its fifth and final season. Netflix officially gave us a premiere date for the first half of the season coming out on Friday, December 6th. All of your favorite characters, well except for Lori Laughlin, are returning uh, according to the trailer. And the full house is only getting fuller with the addition of Jimmy and Stephanie's unnamed baby. The new baby storyline is going to provide us with plenty of fun and hilarious plots. Plus, it'll give us a sweet parallel to the first season of Full House when Michelle Tanner was just a little baby. But the baby isn't going to be the only focus of the, uh, the series. After all, there are like 15 people living in that household. And according to Ramona, quote unquote, legally, if three more people move in, they have to register as a commune. <laughs> Other plot lines revealed in the trailer include a possible DJ and Steve wedding, because uh, you know that's been a long time in the works. But personally, I'm a more of a Dr. Matt Harmon fan. So hopefully he's going to get a love interest that's, you know, worthy. Um, when Ramona 
says there's going to be a lot of love in the household. She's not lying. In addition to a possible Steve and DJ wedding, Jimmy and Stephanie are engaged in planning a wedding, and so are Kimmy and Fernando. Although they've been engaged and divorced for a while now, so who's even keeping track of their relationship at this point? Uh, The season won't be without drama, though, as Stephanie realizes that Jimmy is always on the road, and she feels like she's raising her baby alone. And again, paralleling Danny's struggles in season one of Full House, DJ assures her that in the Fuller household, family raises family. And by the looks of the guest stars, which is dad, Danny, Uncle Jesse, and Uncle Joey, that statement holds a lot of value. So block off your schedule on December 6th to binge watch all nine episodes. The remaining nine episodes of the series will air sometime in 2020. Disney Plus continues to be the talk of the town. The reboot town, that is. The Lizzie McGuire reboot is causing quite a stir amongst millennials eager to get a taste of their childhood. But the McGuire family isn't the only family reuniting. Penny, Sugar Mama, and the Proud family will return for brand new episodes. Speculation has been rampant for a few months, but the official confirmation came during Good Morning America when the Joe... Marie Payton, the voice of Sugar Mama, revealed that new episodes are coming in February. Quote unquote, yes, on Disney Plus, host Kiki Palmer added with enthusiasm. The Proud family aired for three seasons from 2001 to 2005. It's unclear whether Penny Proud will be an adult like Lizzie McGuire, who is going to be in her 30s, or if the series is going to pick up where it left off. Either way, we're pumped. Fans of Grey's Anatomy, your show is on the move. Series uh, showrunner Krista Vernoff told Deadline that the show is going back to its roots, a 9 p.m. time slot, and sexier content in 2020. Apparently, going from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. gives them room for more risque adult content. Uh, She said, There are different rules for a 9 p.m. show than there are for an 8 p.m. show, and we hope to take advantage of those rules. Grey's was definitely allowed to be a sexier show when it was on 9 p.m., so we are excited to change back to our previous Thursday time slot. Grey's will make room for the return of spin-off series Station 19. A Million Little Things will assume the 10 p.m. time slot, while How to Get Away with Murder is on hold until April 2nd, when it returns for its final six episodes. Grey's Anatomy will open its doors again on January 23rd. On a more somber note, Melissa Benoit, who plays Supergirl on the CW series of the same name, revealed she's a real-life superhero. The day before Thanksgiving, the actress posted a video in which she read out loud a piece she wrote about her experience with domestic violence, which she refers to as intimate partner violence, or IPV for short. Quote, I am a survivor of domestic violence, which is something I never in my life expected I would say let alone be broadcasting into the ether, Benoist said in the video. He could be charming, funny, manipulative, and devious. She revealed that the abuse happened five months into their relationship. It was emotional at first, with her partner becoming jealous about romantic or flirtatious scenes at work, to the point where she avoided them. It eventually progressed into physical when when he threw a smoothie at her face. Quote, the stark truth is I learned what it felt like to be pinned down and slapped repeatedly, punched so hard the wind was knocked out of me, dragged by my hair across pavement, head butted, 
pinched until my skin broke, shoved into a wall so hard the drywall broke, choked, she continued. I learned to lock myself in rooms, but quickly stopped because the door was inevitably broken down. I learned to not value any of my property, replaceable and irreplaceable. I learned not to value myself. Benoist was convinced enough was enough when her partner threw an iPhone at her face. She mentioned that as he drove her to the hospital, they'd had to concoct a fake story to tell everyone about she fell into a potted plant. Quote, the impact tore my iris, nearly ruptured my eyeball, lacerated my skin, and broke my nose, she said. My left eye swelled shut. I had a fat lip. Something inside of me broke. This was too far. Benoist said she confided in friends who suspected the worst was happening anyways, and they helped her get out of the relationship. After her brutally honest revelation, her husband and former Supergirl co-star Chris Wood showed his support on social media, tweeting, Happy Thanksgiving. I'm going to kiss my wife and hold her tenderly, all day and every day. How do you show love? Benoist never revealed the name of her abuser. In her Instagram post, she shared the number to a domestic violence hotline and encouraged anyone in a similar situation to find a way out. Her story is heartbreaking, but as she said, there's strength in numbers, and being so transparent about her situation will hopefully help others. There's no easy way to transition out of something like that, but let's talk about things to watch this week. Aside from the regularly scheduled programming, which includes a ton of fall finales, there's also a slew of new programming to bring you joy and entertain your eyeballs. You know what they say, when one door closes, dozens of new ones open. As I mentioned earlier, Fuller House hits Netflix on December 6th. Uh, There's two new holiday movies I'm excited about that are premiering this week. The first is a freeform original starring the bold types Aisha D and gives ghosting a literal meaning when her character Jess dies tragically in a car accident on her way home from the best date of her life. The twist comes when Jess's spirit gets stuck on earth and her date Ben and her best friend Kara are the people, the only two people on the planet that can see her. However, before Ben realizes what's really going on, he thinks Jess ghosted him without realizing that she is an actual ghost now. Honestly, I'm surprised this is the first literal ghost movie. The idea is cute, and if I know anything about cheesy holiday movies, Jess's mission is to bring Ben and Kara together, which will then allow her to pass on. Ghosting in the Spirit of Christmas premieres December 4th. Uh, ABC is embracing the holiday spirit with their original offering titled Same Time Next Christmas, starring Leah Michelle and the original star Charles Michael Davis. Michelle's character, Olivia, returns to Hawaii for her family's annual Christmas visit and reunites with her childhood sweetheart, who was played by Davis. Feelings are reignited, but Michelle has a new squeeze that comes between them. You know, they'll likely find their way back to each other because true love always prevails in holiday movies. But it's going to be fun to see them defy all the circumstances attempting to keep them apart. The film debuts Thursday, December 5th. Now, fans of the A Christmas Prince franchise on Netflix can stream the third sequel titled The Royal Baby starting Thursday, December 5th. A royal baby brings joy to Aldovia, but before those celebrations can begin, iZombie's Rose McIver reassumes her role as Amber alongside Richard, and the two of them host royals from a neighboring kingdom when a treaty disappears and threatens the monarchy. 
There's a lot to be grateful for this season, and one of those things is Ian Summerholder returning to the vampire genre. Only this time, Summerholder hunts the likes of Damon and Stefan Salvatore. He's a vampire hunter in Netflix's new horror drama titled V Wars. The series is based on Jonathan Mayberry's graphic novel and finds two besties, Summerholder's character and Arrow's Adrian Holmes, at odds. Summerholder's Dr. Luther Swan tries to save or defeat Holmes, who becomes a powerful underground vampire leader due to an infection from a virus. V Wars is available on Netflix starting Thursday, December 5th also. And finally, the wait for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is almost over. Mrs. Maisel embarks on her world tour on Friday, December 6th on Amazon Prime. The third season of the Emmy Award-winning series finds the character pursuing her comedy career on tour with singer Shy Baldwin. Also, This Is Us actor Sterling K. Brown recurs in this season, and though he's remained mum on the role, he did tease that, quote, I'm getting together with Midge and it's going to be awesome. We're ready for it, Sterling. We're ready. Okay, so let's kick off this next part of the podcast with shows that are on hiatus following some intense mid-season finales. As usual, we're ringing the spoiler alarm, so if you haven't watched or aren't caught up on shows, stop listening. Or if you love spoilers, don't stop listening. It's up to you, but you've been warned. Supergirl and Batwoman both aired their fall finales and gave us a peek into the upcoming crossover Crisis on Infinite Earths in the final moments of both episodes. But before we get into that, let's break down the finales, shall we? Batwoman brought the Alice versus Kate and Jacob war to a head and made good on that mad tea party that Alice has been teasing for several episodes. Major emphasis on the mad part? Um, Alice's whole vibe is revenge on her family that abandoned and deserted her, which has worked in the first few episodes as a motive, but now it's gotten tired and repetitive. Like, we get it, Alice. You're hurt. But also, let's logically break this down. She's mad at two people who looked for her and gave up when they were told that her DNA was found. Sure, Jacob could have had the DNA tested, but Catherine switched it in the lab. And even so, why would they have expected that she would have survived such a long fall? Alice needs to move on from this vendetta. Um, but she hasn't, and that led to this finale and changed everyone by the time the hour was up. Catherine is out as, was outed as the true villain during her honorary gala before being poisoned. She died in Mary's arms, sacrificing herself to save her daughter, with one dose of the cure left behind. And even then, it was kind of sketchy because, like, what if Alice never did provide a cure? Like, Mary took a risk drinking that because you just never know with Alice. We haven't delved into Catherine's um, character or backstory or her motivations as much as we should have. All we've known about her is what Kate and Alice have told us. She's Jacob's wife, she lied about the DNA test, and she runs Hamilton Dynamics, which aids the very criminals in Gotham that Jacob protects with the crows. Had she died with us only knowing this part of her, it just wouldn't have been a necessary that it wouldn't have been that gut punch that Batwoman was going for. So the writers redeemed her in the end, first by having her give the cure to Mary, then by explaining that she always knew Mary had was running a, a rogue clinic. 
She also then um, confessed to lying about the DNA to ease Kate and Jacob's pain and then offered up a heartfelt apology to Alice on her deathbed. When all was said and done, Catherine's death was painful because she wasn't as terrible as they had painted her out to be. And because it was a huge blow to Mary, who I believe is the true victim in all of this. Mary, one of the most fleshed out and badass characters on the series, just doesn't deserve any of the pain that anyone's been causing her. She didn't deserve to get caught up in Kate and Alice's games or to lose her mother because of them. All she's ever done was hope people and help people and ask Kate if Alice is worth it. Now, Kate knows that she isn't. The Alice and Mary showdown was impeccable because they are the show's strongest characters. It was their first time officially meeting face to face. But there's a ton of emotional baggage between them that could have been felt, even though they never expressed any of it. Catherine is dead, Jacob was framed for her murder, but all of it could have been prevented by Kate, which makes me think that she's not a good sister and not a good superhero either. There's something to be said for neither Catherine nor Mary figuring out that Jacob wasn't really himself, but whatever. We'll focus on Kate finding out that truth and doing absolutely nothing with it. She tried to warn Sophie, though it was too late, but like honestly, Sophie could take care of herself. Why didn't Kate send a text to Mary, the sister who said she was going to the gala with her mother and Jacob? Why didn't she warn people at the gala? She focused on finding Jacob, which is fine, but at the same time, she ignored the fact that Mouse and Alice's goons were crawling the event filled with Gotham's finest. I mean, Kate, where are your priorities? By the end of the episode, Kate vowed to get revenge on her sister, which is something she should have done from the get-go. She was so hung up on believing that Beth was still somewhere deep inside of Alice, and while we saw some glimmers of her appear, it's only because Alice deeply wants to get Kate on her team, on her team with Mouse and into her new little family. She loves her sister, but it's not for the right reasons. So there's really no rehabilitating her, If Kate just took care of the problem initially, we wouldn't be in this predicament. This also begs the question, who are the true villains of Gotham? Catherine has done her fair share of evil things, as has Jacob. But Alice and Mouse are doing harmful things for the right reasons. They're fighting injustice in a deranged way that only makes sense to them. Does it make them the villains for pointing out what others are too scared to say? I'm not sure, but it's an interesting setup right now. On a less important note, but one that will likely play a bigger role in saving Jacob on Batwoman 1B, Sophie and Tyler have split up since she's not sure if she's in love with him, and because we all know she has feelings for Kate. For a series where no one is able to make the right decision, that decision came so easily to Tyler. He honestly deserves better, even if we don't know him well enough. Um, And with him out of the way, Kate and Sophie can reunite in time to lead the crows and save Jacob. Yay! What did you think of the Batwoman finale? Did you like it? Are you over Alice's crusade? Did you expect an actual tea party? Because I'm a little bummed that there wasn't one. Supergirl gave the complete opposite message of Batwoman. In National City, Supergirl and friends believe that people can change for the better if given the chance. Well, that is everyone except for Lena. Malefic and Arcata, aka Andrea Rojas, both put their best foot forward to save the people of National City. 
Malefic used his Q-waves to counteract Lena's myriad mind control, while Arcata stopped Ramakan from wiping out the population in what was teased as Pompeii 2.0. But Lena? Nope. Our girl did not listen to reason from Supergirl because she felt betrayed and continued to believe that her plan was for the betterment of people. She actually said, quote unquote, sometimes the good guys don't win. And that paralleled Lex's deranged, I've always been the hero response to the monitor. Yep, she's a Luther through and through. And although Supergirl doesn't want to paint her as a villain, the truth is she kind of is. Alex pointed out that Lena has done her fair share of keeping secrets and lying, usually for her own benefit, which is different than what Supergirl did and why she lied to Lena, because that was to protect her. So honestly, Lena's a bit of a hypocrite. We want to feel sorry for her, but should we really? I don't think so. And yes, I said Lex Luthor because he's out there and alive. That was one of the many of the crisis crossover teases. The Monitor told Luthor that he was finally going to get to become the hero he's always wanted to be. But Lex wanted to talk about his sister first, which honestly doesn't bode well for Lena. The other crisis tease came when Malefic jetted off to Mars and then the Monitor appeared and informed John that he passed his test. Making amends with Malefic allowed him to no longer carry the burden of the past, so he's now ready to face the next crisis. Okay, John, we believe in you. Supergirl seems to have a better tie into the crisis crossover than Batwoman, whose episode was completely removed from any of the crisis teases. Um, on Supergirl, there was also the Ramakan situation in which Supergirl, John, and Arcata defeated him and then Gamame took over after basically saying he was worthless. She also referred to she, another she, giving her the orders, which I'm guessing refers to Leviathan, which might be the woman that we've been seeing um, with Eve and talking to Arcata. Uh, the fact that the universes are aligned likely also plays a role into the crisis timing. Which brings us to that final scene. The teaser jumped to Central City as Nash Wells, presumably on his way to becoming another DC Comics character, Pariah, was seen in the sewers standing in front of a door as he uncovered a secret passageway. He revealed he traveled multiverses to kill the Monitor, but now that he was here, he couldn't bring himself to do it since the Monitor saved his life. Nash then submitted to the monitor, punched in some old symbols, and a golden light illuminated the screen. Where did he go? Who will he meet? What will he become? All those answers are coming for you when this crossover kicks off with Supergirl on December 8th, Batwoman on December 9th, The Flash on December 10th, and Arrow slash Legends of Tomorrow on January 14th, 2020. Chicago Med and Chicago PD both went out with a bang that leaves relationships and lives hanging in the balance. Throughout the hour, Natalie's memories came back to her and made her realize that she's been so rude to Will Halstead. But they say timing is everything, and Halstead finally moved on from Natalie after she told him to get out of her life. When she confronted Will to tell him that she, um, that she remembered what she came to say to him that night in the car... Will didn't really care. He realized they were toxic to each other and better off alone. Finally, am I right? Like, it took him this long to come to that conclusion. Not even Natalie's I love you could change his mind, and he basically just walked away and left her heartbroken. And she won't be finding solace in Philip's arms because he turned out to be a pathological liar. Hey, 
at least we are right about him. He abandoned baby Sophie because according to his brother-in-law, there was no longer a benefit to taking care of her. He no longer had Natalie because she broke up with him, which meant that he was free to do whatever it is pathological liars do. The worst part is that baby Sophie needed an intricate surgery and he gave a do not resuscitate order because again, Philip is a monster. Natalie was baffled, but the series didn't really give her any time to process or understand the impact of the realization that she was dating a lying person before throwing her back into Will's arms. So while the storyline was powerful and it had a lot of potential, and baby Sophie's survival was a huge success thanks to Dr. Latham, the only man who took the surgery, it, it really fell flat. Unless they plan on bringing Philip back to deliver that gut punch on this revelation, I think the storyline is a done deal. Will Natalie try to win Will back? Will she move on? I personally think she just needs to figure out her own life. She's bounced from relationship to relationship, constantly relying on men, and she hasn't just had time to be alone, which is just what she needs. April and Ethan bud, butted heads about her pregnancy. Ethan's been pushing to have a baby, and we can't really blame his excitement since April wasn't forthcoming about her issues. April has had, has had pregnancy issues before, so her early onset menopause diagnosis should not come as a major shock to anyone. But she's triggered by it, so Ethan is uninformed, and it led to a huge blowout with them, which manifested um, through their patients and eventually led to a kiss between April and Crockett. You know, April and Ethan's back and forth relationship has been kind of draining on the audience. And just when we all thought it was getting better, they went back into old habits. So in a way, I'm kind of rooting for Crockett. There's a spark between the two of them that could really shake things up on this series. And it's a spark that I haven't seen between Ethan and April in a very long time. However, it is unfair to Ethan um, in this situation. He was drafted, and by the time he comes back, the teasers show that he really wants to commit to this relationship, but we're not really sure where April stands um, due to the cheating. Uh, Chicago Med has gotten kind of soapy as of late, and if they plan to continue down this path, they may as well have April just get pregnant with Crockett's baby after sleeping with him one time. I mean, can you imagine the drama stemming from that? April was so preoccupied with her Ethan Crockett pregnancy drama that she completely forgot about her brother. Like, where is Noah? Is he still recovering? Are we going to get any follow-up on the patient responsible for, you know, leading to his beat-up? And finally, Ben's cancer has taken a turn for the better. In a surprising twist, because let's be honest, we all crossed Ben off as a goner, um, he began getting better. They chalked it up to his immune system strengthening, strengthening without the chemo, but we all know it's because Maggie's love has carried him through. I was really hurt when they, um, when I thought that they were giving Maggie a love interest just to take him away a few episodes later. So I'm thrilled that we're going to explore this relationship more. And it would just be great if they both came out of this stronger than ever. Maggie needs it and Ben definitely needs it. The same cannot be said for Cece, who is living out her final days. Dr. Charles threw her a bon voyage party as the last celebration with all of her loved ones. You know, it's a tough pill to swallow. Um, especially seeing Dr. Charles's breakdown. He's always such a rational and put-together human being, 
but seeing him unable to control his emotions proved that he's also human. He powered through, um, even telling Robin that she cannot be there when Cece passes because her mother wants her to remember her in a positive way. I'm going to assume that when the show returns in 2020, Cece will have passed on and we will see Charles um, dealing with the aftermath of the loss and grappling with his grief. Now, Chicago PD finds Halstead's life in the balance um, after an intense episode that made him a kidnapping victim. The episode was an emotional roller coaster. The phrase kindness is weakness summed up all of Halstead's actions. He ignored his better judgment throughout the whole episode, and now his life is hanging in the balance, literally. Halstead knew better, and yet his guilt over Marcus's West's death consumed him. He should have heeded Upton's warnings against getting involved with the suspect's family and just walked away. And he never should have told Angela the truth about what happened to Marcus. At times, it felt as though Halstead was making it worse for himself because he thought he deserved that kind of treatment. He thought he deserved to be punished. Um, Halstead's guilt forced Chicago PD to acknowledge that these detectives aren't robots and that wrongfully implicating an innocent man is not something Halstead could just forget about and move on from. It weighed heavily on his conscience and it took a toll on him. But what does all of this mean moving forward? Angelo was so furious at Halstead's admission that even after he saved the both of them from the kidnappers, um, a situation that I have to say she got them into in the first place, she shot him. Point blank shot our boy. Now, I don't think the series would ever kill off Halstead because he is one of the few remaining intelligence um, detectives left from the original group, and he's a fan favorite. But given what happened to Antonio and Al recently, I can't say that it isn't a possibility. The fact that Upton, Upton was on the scene means that she'll be able to give him the care he needs before he gets medical treatment. Um, likely he will survive. But the bigger problem is going to be Angela, who, you know, threatened to go public um, about how the cops were framing her husband in a teaser for the upcoming episode. Is her decision surprising? Not really. She's poor, her son is sick, and she thinks she deserves it. And I mean, she does, doesn't she? She saw an opportunity to not only do right by Marcus, but to get herself out of a bad situation and into a, a, into a better one. It's kind of a no-brainer. But it's also not ideal for intelligence. And the city of Chicago and the interim mayor. Um, I don't know if he's still an interim mayor. Uh, I'm not sure if, he just, if we just glossed over that, but it doesn't even matter anyway. The point is, everyone is screwed if this gets out. It doesn't just become a local cover-up, it becomes a nationwide scandal. So while Halstead is fighting for his life, Voight and company will have to figure out what to do. Um, Halstead implicated everyone with his confession. Sometimes it's just best to leave things unsaid, even if they do destroy you internally. Um, because now it's like, how are they going to keep Angela quiet? Maybe paying her out will work, since she seems to be more motivated about money than anything else and getting justice, but we'll see how it pans out. Halstead's near brush with death will likely also bring him and Upton close and closer together, which fans have been waiting for. Um, 
so yeah, there, there. That's pretty much the gist of that fall finale. Um, there was a little bit of a mention of Baby Burgess, though nothing has been made public to intelligence, and no decision has been made between them. So, I guess we're staying, staying tuned to the next part of the season. Both Chicago Med and PD return on January tenth, twenty twenty. How is it possible that This Is Us manages to make holiday episodes? more emotional every single time. Thanksgiving has always been a huge deal for the Pearson family, and just like Nikki mentioned, Jack Pearson's traditions are the backbone of the shindig. The series does an impeccable job of keeping Jack's memory alive, even though he's been gone for years now. And it's done in the smallest moments that could be glossed over if not for the beautiful parallel that they offer the present-day storylines. Traditions like five pounds of shrimp started with Jack and Nikki ditching their less than joyous Thanksgiving celebrations at home to watch a game at the bar. When Nikki won a good sum of money from a deal he made with a friend, they splurged by ordering an obscene amount of shrimp. As Nikki attended his first Thanksgiving with the Pearson clan and tagged along with Randall and Annie as they picked up some left behind belongings from their old house, he realized that despite erasing him, Jack never forgot about him. He'd quote Leonard Cohen's song and call it a poem, just like Nikki did, and he'd explain the song to his kids the same way his brother explained it to him. Nikki was then inspired to honor his late brother and introduce the family to traditions they didn't know about, just as they'd introduced him to Pilgrim Rick. As he brought out a platter of five pounds of shrimp, I lost it. Again, such a small moment, but it has so much power in the context of their storytelling. And then they took it even further, later showing Kate and Toby's son, adult Jack, hosting his own Thanksgiving with his pregnant wife and bringing out five pounds of shrimp. Jack's impact has spanned decades, and even though his grandchildren have never met him, they still honor him because of how important he was to their parents. Rebecca's deteriorating memory storyline was front and center as she attempted to ignore the ugly truth until she no longer could. Can I just say that Mandy Moore is such an incredible actress. The whole time I could feel her confusion and her fear in her body language and movements. The camera angles made it seem like there was something some sometimes looking through her disoriented point of view and that helped drive so many of those emotions. When she finally made her way back home from the movies, movies, she admitted to Randall that she needed to see a doctor, which immediately put a damper on his holiday. But surprisingly, the moments we saw of Rebecca's forgetfulness, including the scenes where she thought she saw young William and when she lost her phone and panicked at a Chinese restaurant, none of those took place at this Thanksgiving. Those scenes were happening in a future timeline, nine months in advance. The police picked her up and returned her home to the log cabin where Miguel, Kate, and Kevin were waiting to celebrate their big 4-0. And this flash forward revealed a whole lot. For starters, Randall wasn't there because they aren't on speaking terms anymore. Does that mean just him and Kevin, or is that Randall and the whole family? And what could have changed so drastically in nine months? Was Kevin upset that Randall knew about Rebecca's deteriorating state and didn't say anything to them? Toby wasn't seen at the party, and neither was baby Jack, which isn't a good sign at all. Kate wasn't a fan of CrossFit Toby in the present day, and truthfully, I wasn't either. I am all about getting fit and healthy, but there's no need for it to consume your life. Kate didn't bring it up to him because she didn't want to upset him, but that text message she saw on his phone spells trouble. 
I'm guessing Lady Kryptonite is his CrossFit trainer or nutritionist that's supposed to keep him on track, but he's clearly talking to other people about his marriage and isn't happy with how Kate's responding to his new lifestyle. Like Beth said, talking to other people about what's happening between you and your husband is how you enter dangerous territory in your marriage. These two need to get brutally honest with each other, even if it hurts, if they want a chance at salvaging this relationship. I'll say, though, nothing is ever as it seems on This Is Us, so maybe they do overcome this, and Toby and Baby Jack's absence during the 40th birthdays have you know, a reasonable explanation. Maybe it has nothing to do with what's happening. Then again, maybe this time, what we see is what we get. Someone else was at the 40th birthday, too, though they remained off screen, and it was Kevin's pregnant fiance. Okay, I guess a lot really can change in nine months. Um, When Kevin told Randall he wanted to start a family by 40, Randall kind of laughed it off and told him to find a girlfriend first, but Kevin just proved that he's capable of doing whatever he sets his mind to. So who is this mystery fiancé? The fact that it's only been nine months um, makes me think it's someone Kevin already knew, and that points to either Sophie or Cassidy. I can see either happening, honestly. But nine months also means that it could have been a quick relationship and the woman is someone we've never met before. It could be less exciting, sure, but maybe that first start is exactly what Kevin needs. Secondary storylines included Shauna living her best life, which took a toll on Beth and Deja. Beth wanted Shauna to be doing well, but when she found out she was, she felt intimidated that she and Deja had this connection that Beth wasn't a part of. Meanwhile, Deja was upset her mom found out a way to be a person, the kind of person she always wanted her to be, but without her. Both Deja and Beth found a way to accept Shauna's new lifestyle and be happy for her, which was sweet. I guess my only concern was why Shauna never invited Deja over to her new apartment with a fireplace. Were they not supposed to see each other? If she's in such a good headspace in her life, that she's hosting potlucks with her coworkers, why wasn't she able to include Deja in it occasionally? Tessa's coming out storyline also proved that Kevin is going to be a great father. As we know, not all coming out experiences are this positive, but it's nice that This Is Us showcases the positivity that could be in 2019, because there are people and families that are open and accepting like the Pearsons. So we'll see where our journey with This Is Us takes us in 2020, But we'll meet back here on January 14th for new episodes. The Good Place finale was all about Chidi Anagonye and his inability to make a decision ever. Chidi has been sidelined for much of the fourth season since his memories have been erased. He's been participating in the neighborhood's activities, sure. But the Chidi we know and love hasn't been able to help out the team directly with saving humanity. Until now. As human life hangs in the balance, Chidi is the only one that can figure out what to do next. Much of the episode happens in slow motion as Michael snaps his fingers to restore Chidi's memories. We see those key memories pop inside Chidi's mind and restore him to his full potential. We see Chidi as a child trying to save his parents' marriage. Um, We see him during his college dating years and even... We even see soulmates that Chidi has encountered in the afterlife that we've never seen before, probably because it would take ages to go through all of Michael's 800 reboots. 
The flashbacks allow us to see how Chidi has changed over the course of his life, leading up to this very moment where he's called upon to make a decision that will affect the whole universe. No pressure, right? But also, these moments uh, dive deeper into Eleanor and Chidi's love story, specifically how she played a role in making him a more decisive and less anxious person. They've both made each other better, even if soulmates were never a real thing. All of this forms the Chidi that snaps back to reality and is certain of one thing and one thing only. Eleanor is the answer, something he wrote and allowed Janet to hang on to, a sweet callback to the first time Eleanor realized that this was really the bad place, and wrote herself a note to help her find Chidi after Michael's reboot. Uh, Chidi wakes up and he's confident that there's never just one answer because things changed as situations and circumstances do. So while we don't know what his solution will be um, that will guide the remaining four episodes, we do know that Chidi has finally found the confidence to make a decision and stick by it, regardless of whether or not it's the right one. And you know what? I don't want to put too much stock into the ending because inevitably, someone's going to be disappointed, as is often the case with finales. So I'll revel in the fact that all of these four humans, plus Janet, not a girl, and not a robot, and Michael, a demon, have all become better through their shared experiences and because of each other. And really, that's the most important lesson of all, and that's what makes humans so great. The latest episode of Godfriended Me would have made for a very promising mid-season finale, but the series is taking a week-long break and returning this upcoming Sunday, December 8th. And that's probably for the best because we just needed a little space to accept that there is trouble in paradise for Kara and Miles. The God Account's latest friend suggestion was personal to Kara, which meant that all of her logic and reasoning suddenly went out the door. When Paul, Kara's stepfather, became Miles' friend's suggestion, it was evident that this was going to test their relationship. Paul's financial situation was um, in more trouble than he previously admitted. He wasn't just making bad deals at work. He was meddling in insider trading, which we all know is like a huge no-no. It's hard to see clearly when it comes to family, and Kara wanted to believe the best in her stepdad. And her ill-advised actions reflected the misplaced trust. Instead of trusting the God account per usual, um, a God account that's never let her down or anyone else for that matter, she turned her back on it. And then she got upset when Miles followed his gut and did what he thought was best. You know, should Miles have warned Kara that he was going to pull the trigger? Um, yes, but she likely wouldn't have listened to logic anyways. If Miles hadn't sent Adam the anonymous tip, Paul's situation would have ended much worse um, since he would have gone through with his plan to skip town and that would have um, made things worse not only for himself but for his family. So Miles was basically choosing from the lesser of two evils. Uh, Not having a happy ending is kind of a new format for the God account. But it's more realistic. You know, I get that the show is supposed to be like happy and positive and feel good, but sometimes that's not how life is. And sometimes we get into these problems where, I mean, there is no good solution. There's only one that's better than the other. Kara's response to Miles was deeply disappointing because calling him a non-believer who follows the God account blindly 
was just a low dig. Um, and it's something that has never bothered Kara before. It's actually something she's liked about Miles. So for it to be a problem now was, was just a low blow. Um, Kara also trusted her family over Miles and over what they've built with this God account, the credibility. Um, and it's a family she only recently just met and became close to, which was kind of strange. And I mean, I don't know. Hopefully these two will be able to make up and their relationship has been a highlight on the show and the strength of it has been a, just a good asset. So, you know, they need to get back together. Well, they're not broken up, but they need to just figure out a way to move past this. Um, Because Miles, he's never worked alone, and hopefully he doesn't have to start that now. Um, Miles wasn't the only one making a tough choice, as Reverend Finer was forced to let a council member go who was getting in his way of making real change within the archdiocese. Um, And he was letting personal reasons guide his judgment. I've read comments from some religious humans on like the God friended me Facebook fan pages who say that these statements against Miles being an atheist and Allie being part of the LGBTQ community were wrong and that they shouldn't have affected his judgment of Arthur or Arthur's plans. And that's true. But the fact that Arthur is a man of God who was living with a woman before marriage was something that didn't sit well with a lot of fans. And I guess I can understand that, um, the setting an example part, but also Trish and Arthur are engaged and on their way to becoming married. And I don't think that makes him less of a person. I don't think that makes him less of a good person, but it does show that he's accepting of others and other people's beliefs. So I personally didn't have much of a problem with um, Arthur and Trish living together before marriage um, any more than I didn't have a problem with Miles being an atheist and Allie being gay. Um, so yeah, Reverend Elias got what he deserved. Um, it might have been an extreme thing to do, but Arthur would have never gotten, they would have never gotten past this. And Elias would have never let up and it would have just, it would have just been terrible for Arthur's role as bishop. And this moment finally helped Trish come around and realize that she needed to be part of the church if she wanted to be part of Arthur's life. So it's nice to see her kind of coming through for him and being there. Um, Rakesh's quest to win Jaya back um, inspired a new dating app, which hopefully finds him a new soulmate, though, because I'm not okay with how Jaya treated Jaya treated Rakesh, and I don't think she deserves him back, and she doesn't deserve his love, and I think that maybe this app will put that into perspective for Rakesh that if soulmates do exist, that maybe Jaya isn't his. Emergence is on hold for this week, which is probably, again, for the best because we need some time to process all the OMG moments from last week's episode. The episode introduced a new key player that's more dangerous than Richard Kindred and Emily combined. This lady, and what I'm referring to as her dark army, are the people responsible for the explosions at Augur Industries. And based on the woman's convo with Alan before she stabbed him in the throat, she wants what they stole from her which is likely Piper or a prototype for Piper. Um, Currently, this mystery woman's connection to Piper has not been revealed, and um, we're not sure if she wants to protect Piper or destroy her. 
Um, but what if Wilkins said is true about technology becoming rapidly advanced, I'm leaning towards destroying Piper being the right answer. Wilkins was adamant about eliminating the threat of AI before all of humankind becomes extinct. Piper proved her powers when she managed to overwrite her own code. And that accomplishment was pretty impressive. It was more impressive than it was terrifying. But things have changed now that she was fine after learning the truth about herself, which was supposed to be a fatal exception, the fail safe, the thing that shut Piper down. And somehow she managed to override that too. And excuse me if like all my AI tech lingo isn't completely accurate, but the point is that Piper is doing stuff that she wasn't programmed to do initially, that she wasn't, she didn't have the capabilities to do. Um, Maybe the fact that she's convincing everyone with her human-like qualities, such as love, concern, fear, hopefulness, um, is kind of putting a blind, is, is helping Joe turn a blind eye to what she really is. But we really can't forget that she is AI. Joe assumes that she's evolving because of all this human exposure. And I have to agree, there is some truth to that. But, you know... There's the very reality that can't be ignored that Piper is a piece of technology that's advancing at lightning speeds. Emily tested the fatal exception on a prototype and saw that it worked. So what happened in Piper's case? I mean, there's a possibility possibility that when Emily gave Piper the fatal exception, she eliminated that shutdown part of it. But I don't think that's necessarily the case because... Emily wanted to shut down Piper after she didn't love her. So I do think it points to Piper advancing. Um, Piper is also armed with the truth about where she's from, thanks to Alex, who couldn't have done anything stupider. I mean, really, Joe hasn't told him the truth about what's happening in order to protect him and to protect Piper. But by taking her to her home, he proved that he was never ready for the truth either. Um, so what Piper will do with that newfound information is unclear also. Um, the mystery woman um, that I mentioned at the beginning isn't the only new addition to the cast. We also met the devastatingly handsome Agent Brooks, who started as Joe's friend and quickly ended up as a foe. Joe didn't trust Brooks, and she betrayed his trust rather immediately, um, everything that he wants to investigate leads right back to Piper. So it's only a matter of time before the FBI comes knocking on Joe's door, um, especially now that they have Emily and they're willing, she's willing to talk and tell them everything. Um, and I think the biggest shocker of this episode was the fact that Piper looks like a childhood version of Emily. It probably doesn't have a bigger meaning other than just making Emily seem crazier than we already thought she was, but it was really shocking. And it really does explain why Emily is so obsessed with this specific AI. Um, And I also think it means that we're not done with Emily. Um, But I do think that the writers have failed to flesh her out or take advantage of the kind of promising villain she would be. Um, So hopefully being with the FBI um, doesn't stop them, doesn't stop her. I mean, I think there's more story to tell. I think that she has more potential. 
And I think she's smart enough to play her cards right here. Um, but we'll see. The mid finale um, airs Tuesday, December 10th. So look out for that. The Resident is criminally underrated as a series. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Like, it just does not get the love that it deserves. And sadly, it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon. Um, because the Thanksgiving Day episode that aired last Tuesday was one of the lowest rated to date. And it was so good. Like, that's not even fair. Aside from the medicine and health as- aspect of the series, the bulk of the episode questioned what it means to be a family and looked at different familial relationships um, as AJ Austin reunited with his adoptive family and his birth family for their first joint holiday. Um, he met his brothers, his adoptive parents met his birth parents, and though things were a little dicey at first, by the end of the night, everyone embraced the new normal and even cracked some jokes about um, giving him up. He said it was too soon, but it was kind of funny. It was heartwarming to watch and to see that there's a reason why AJ is this all-around great and genius man that he is. Um, it was a little light on the Mina and AJ moments, um, and I prefer that we get a bit more of those before the series season ends, but it was nice to just see him form a bond with his family and his two brothers and just really spend a holiday getting to know himself. Um, for whatever reason, Thanksgiving on television is usually a time of drama and shaky family dynamics. And that was the case for Nick, whose sexy Thanksgiving with Conrad was interrupted when her dad arrived with his new friend, an addict recently clean, whom he met while he was volunteering at the hospital. It was immediately evident that Kyle was trying to fix um, this girl in a way that he couldn't fix Jesse. But after she stole a bunch of Nick's jewelry and probably pawned it off to buy drugs, Nick made it clear this woman was not Jesse. The first holiday without Jesse was a tough, tough thing for them, though it brought them closer together because all they have now is each other. Um, and even then, Kyle felt like he was bothering um, and cut out early to watch some home videos of when Thanksgiving truly was the best holiday for the family. And as he was sitting there crying, I admit I shed more than a few tears watching this broken father remember the good times. It's really a nice reminder uh, of what this holiday is all about and to cherish those we're spending time with because we never know if we'll get another moment like this, another moment where all these people are in the room together at the same time. You know, things change so quickly and in the blink of an eye, your loved ones could be gone. And the resident shows that to us week after week. So really just take this time, this holiday season to just love your family members and be grateful for them. Um, Nick did just that when Conrad came back from the hospital after day of saving lives. Um, many of which were caused by Thanksgiving accidents. Who knew Thanksgiving was such a dangerous day? Uh, Dr. Bell is playing with fire as he pushes back against Red Rock's demands. But this isn't his first rodeo. If he could handle crazed Lane Hunter, he can handle this. 
Bell is so good at playing both sides. He can literally veer into the dark side because that's where he started off. But his perspective has changed immensely since being surrounded by good doctors who prioritize patients and patient care. So I'm excited to see his storyline unravel and how, how he's going to overcome Red Rock. Riverdale continues to get more bonkers by the minute, and you know that statement is true when the Thanksgiving episode loosely throws around the word cannibalism. Elsewhere in the episode, Jughead and Betty linked up to solve the mystery of Mr. Chipping's death, an ice storm hit Riverdale, and Archie got a gun pulled on him at his dinner at the rec center. No matter how much sleuthing Betty and Jughead do, Brett and Donna are one step ahead of them, mainly because Jughead still hasn't learned not to talk about his plans and theories out loud for everyone to hear in the hallway. Um, everyone in the school is against him, so he needs to be on alert at all times. Betty and Jughead thought that they'd outsmarted Brett and Donna, but they were really helping them frame Mr. Chipping. Women tend to not come forward about sexual assault out of fear that no one will believe them. Sadly, Riverdale is kind of perpetuating that by offering up Donna's affair storyline with Mr. Chipping, which seems to be fabricated in order to destroy his identity, integrity, and squash any doubt that his death was anything but a suicide from being a terrible person. Um, and maybe she's telling the truth. It could be. But the way this is playing out and the way she brought up the story, it just, it seems like a lie. At first, Mr. DuPont tried to convince Jughead that Chipping's alcoholism played a role in his death. But when that didn't work, they attempted to make him a suicidal predator. So honestly, everyone at Stonewall Prep is in on it, and they're determined to shut uh, Jughead's investigation down because he'll likely figure out the school's deepest and darkest secrets, which... I hope he does, because I'm really curious. Then there's Brett and Donna setting up a camera that is videotaping everything in Jughead's dorm room, including his more intimate moments with Betty. Are they going to try using that against him? Do they think that they'll have the same power over Jughead as they did over Mr. Chipping? The good news is that neither Betty nor Jughead truly believe what's being presented, and Betty has it all mapped out on her investigation board, so she'll likely get to the bottom of this and whatever the secret society is involved in. Archie's Thanksgiving plans went sideways when Dodger's family showed up at the kickboxing gym to get some revenge. The deep-fried turkey explosion caused enough of a distraction for Mary to grab the gun and threaten to kill them all if they didn't get out of Dodge. Badass Mary, welcome and where have you been? Hiram Lodge is now mayor because of course he is and people are not pleased. Veronica threw their whole turkey dinner onto the ground, and he almost came to blows with FP, who then realized he was going to become a serpent and a sheriff at the same time. Bless Riverdale. Just bless them. But the most disturbing storyline came out of Thistle House. Choni needs to head for a breakup because their relationship is weird, it's troublesome, it's toxic, and everything else. Like, why is Tony still staying there? Why is she going along with Cheryl's plans to convince her family that they've eaten Uncle Bedford? Why is she killing? Why is she allowing Jason's corpse to remain in the home? Like, what is going on here? These storylines just need to be put to rest. Cheryl needs to go back to being the powerful, sarcastic vixen that we used to love because this is, for lack of a better term, a mess. 
Legacies um, gave us a monster that fed on secrets. And since everyone in town is keeping us secrets, it was a threat to everyone. But specifically Lizzie, who was keeping Hope's secret from everyone in the school. By the end of the episode, everyone's memories were returned thanks to Josie, who traveled all the way to New Orleans to do the right thing despite not wanting anything to change. She sought out the help of a very powerful witch named Freya, as in Hope's Aunt Freya, and boy was it a pleasure and a treat to see Riley vocal again. In addition to getting the spell from Freya, Josie also solicited advice from her mother, Caroline, though Candace Akala did not guest star because we're, you know, we're still waiting on that to happen. So I just really, I need, I need someone to get it done. Candace, if you're listening, which you probably aren't, but can you just please guest star on Legacies? Thanks. Um, so Caroline gave Josie some good advice via a phone call um, telling her that people deserve to get their memories back no matter how difficult they were for everyone. And they were truly difficult. Once everyone remembered Hope and her sacrifice uh, into Malivore, things got really complicated. Landon became upset with Hope for not telling him the truth um, instead of just being grateful and happy to have her back. Roth turned um, her, his back on her out of respect for Landon and said that they couldn't be friends anymore. Josie wasn't around because she was too preoccupied with her land and drama. And Lizzie was out with Sebastian, who she found out was a real person. So, hey, at least that's a good thing. She's not crazy. He actually is real. And Hope was left all alone after going through all of that, which then made for a really sweet reunion between her and Aunt Freya, who came to Mystic Falls to see the niece that she'd intentionally forgotten. It was a sweet moment. Um... Although we really do need more Aunt Freya this season. Um, we want I want to see Keelan. I want to see her son, Nick. Um, that's a tribute name to Niklaus. Like, how cute is that? She even mentioned that she's thinking of enrolling him in the Salvatore School for the Gifted. So that would be potentially an awesome connection for Hope to have some family members around. Um, let's see. There's a love triangle between Hope, Josie, and Landon that I have found to be particularly interesting. And I even wrote a piece about how this series has revamped the love triangle. And yes, that pun is intended. Um, Julie Pleck has written, or Julie Pleck and her writers have written this love triangle that's completely different than anything previously in her arsenal. So if you want to read about that, that's um, on tvfanatic.com. But for this purpose, I think it's just telling that Landon went to check in on Josie and allowed his anger at Hope to take over. Um, and maybe it's easier for him to just talk to Josie. Maybe it's his relationship is stronger with Josie and he'll continue uh, dating her despite knowing the actual truth about what Hope did. Um, and I think that would be kind of fun because that at least gives the writers some room to play with a new love interest for Hope, though I really don't want it to be Raphael because he let her down um, multiple times. But maybe it is, you know, one of the muggles at school that just told her that she should ask him out or somebody else that we haven't considered. Um, Hope needs, if, if Landon's going to be with Josie and he's going to be happy about it, then Hope needs some love in her life. And finally... Um, 
we're moving on to Dynasty. Thanksgiving at the Carrington household was all about revenge, but that's not a surprise to anyone, really. Um, Adam was up to his usual shenanigans, though this time he roped in Crystal to help him bake Blake's favorite holiday pie. Crystal agreed out of the kindness of her heart because she is kind of a good person, but Adam and Nadia conspired and planned something evil. When Crystal wasn't looking, Nadia turned up the oven, ultimately burning the pies and forcing Crystal to go out of her way to pick up some more pecans, which um, she failed to do because her tires were slashed. What a coincidence. It was all Adam's plan to get her out of the house in time for Blake's family holiday card so that he could prove um, that he's the only one that Blake could really count on. And yet, Crystal made it back in time for dinner and even defended Adam to Blake, which kind of threw Adam for a loop, and he thought that maybe this was um, a new phase in their relationship. But that all changed again once Crystal realized that he was co-conspiring against her with Nadia. But none of that even comes close to the ultimate twist that I did not see coming. And please, tell me if you did see this coming, because I, my jaw like fell to the ground. Turns out Fallon has been paying Nadia, who probably isn't even a real nurse, to get close to Adam. Like, what a juicy twist. What is she prob like what is she plotting? Um this just like this brings me so much joy because one, Adam will finally get what's coming to him. And two, Fallon is a step ahead of Adam when this whole time it seemed like he kept outsmarting her. Like we we should have never doubted our girl. Sammy met a new squeeze um, with PR guru Fletcher. For now, Fletcher's motivations seem innocent enough, but no one on Dynasty is ever what they seem. Fletcher came out of nowhere determined to help Sammy and get close to him, so he has to have an ulterior motive. Um, Blake enjoyed a stressful but thankful holiday ahead of possibly getting um, going to prison. It's why he was so hell-bent on ha- have, having the whole family there together. It's times like these when your freedom is on the line that it makes you really grateful for all that you have. I'm not saying the sentiment will last because this is Blake Carrington after all, but it was nice for, you know, the few what the few seconds it was for what it lasted. Um, at least going into trial, Blake will now have his sidekick Anders next to him, who figured Sammy was in good hands since he... Um, did one good thing for the hotel, and so he left to return to the manor. Uh, From a storytelling perspective, this definitely allows Anders more opportunity, as there was only so much he could do at the hotel, interacting with Kirby, Sammy, and sometimes Colhane. Fallon and Liam's story arc felt a bit dull. Seeing her make a fool of herself to win over Landon so she could hire him for her magazine wasn't the boss babe attitude that I like seeing from Fallon. Um, She doesn't need to be begging people to work for her. I mean, she's Fallon freaking Carrington. All the buildup eventually led to a huge fight between her and Liam and the realization that in order to make this relationship work, they need to make new memories and not try to remember the old ones. And I'm all for it. I'm really hoping that uh, we can avoid this relationship becoming stale and predictable. And a show that has so much drama and twists, it would be easy for them to get lost in the shuffle and their chemistry to fizzle out. So I really hope that doesn't happen because I really, truly love them as a couple. 
As for Dominique's storyline, Vanessa, her daughter, is a spitfire who is out to cause trouble, and I'm here for it. She threw her mother to the wolves and flat out told Monica who she really is. She didn't care that it might cost her a performance uh, deal because she saw that her mom never planned on being honest with her other daughter, and she thought that Monica was a good person and she wanted a relationship with her. The verdict is still out on whether that's going to happen or not, but at least we know Vanessa is the type of person who will challenge her mom and hold her accountable and not just, like, follow suit. Um, the fall finale of Dynasty is coming up this Friday, December 6th, and it's titled The Sensational Blake Carrington Trial. So it'll likely be filled with crazy moments and cliffhangers and maybe Elaine Hendricks, a.k.a. Meredith Blake, a.k.a. the new Alexis Carrington, will finally make an appearance. Who better to vouch for Blake's character than his deranged ex with a new face? Am I right? And that wraps up this episode of Mimosa Talk. Um, plenty of finalities, finales happening as we wrap up the year. Plenty more finales coming this week. But also a lot of bingeable shows are premiering for you to fill your schedule with. So enjoy this slightly less packed TV month because come 2020, shows are going to be taking over your life again. Um, Check out all my musings at craveutv.com if you're interested. Um, It would be awesome if you followed us on social media at both Crave UTV and Mimosa Talk. And as always, feel free to leave comments about what shows you love, what you hate, and what you recommend I watch. I'm like always open to any suggestions. Um, Thank you for joining me again. Thank you for listening. And if you know any TV lovers who could benefit from this podcast or just want to listen to a girl go on and on about TV shows, share my podcast with them. I always appreciate it. Um, I'll see you next time, my TV-loving, mimosa-drinking friends. Cheers!